and um, want to thank I want to thank Dr. Larry Dennis for being willing to minister to us last night, this morning, and again this evening. Amen. Glad to share space with somebody who is willing to let God speak to them and to do whatever it takes to get God's message across. He will be speaking again this evening. I won't introduce him later because you already know who he is. Is that all right? Okay. Father, you are worthy of every holy we can utter. Every holy we can muster. Thank you for the privilege of praising you. Thank you for the possibility of having some sense of you. We give you praise. And we ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to hear what it is that you have to say for us. For we would, through our words, by our actions, through every part of our lives, ascribe to you how holy you are. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Wow. It's been great to be in the presence of uh, some dangerous people the last two days. And we're in a room full of dangerous people. Have you really thought about that? Do you know how the devil himself... Now, this isn't preacher talk. This is the truth, all right? You know how the devil himself must tremble when you assemble together like this? I mean, think about it. Just think about it. Where else in the city of Colorado Springs will you find a room full of people that have literally given up everything to follow God's call? <laughs> when you start thinking about that, and as you come together, become one, that's why it's such a sweet spirit every time you get together. You're united in purpose. You're going to serve the Lord together. You're all here because you didn't really have a choice. Well, sure you did, but if you were going to stay close to God. He called you. He reached down and drew you here. And you are here on a mission. And you're going to go from this place to make a phenomenal difference. And you are making a phenomenal difference here. You've touched my life. I'll never be the same from gathering together with you just in two days. I can't imagine what's going to happen in all of eternity with how the Lord is going to use all of you. I speak to staff, and I speak to faculty, I speak to, speak to administrators, and I speak to students alike. You are dangerous people. I uh, had a chance to talk to one of my colleagues in Texas today, and I told him about what a wonderful time we're having and how impressed I am with all of you. And He was just overwhelmed, and I even told him the truth. So, I mean, it was just amazing. Uh, didn't have to embellish any of it at all. I uh, kind of hate to see this time draw to an end. You've been so good to me, and the opportunity to stand before you has been such a, an honor and a privilege. But, uh, you know, good things on my part do come to an end, but you've got uh, many of you three or four more years here, some of you longer than that. Uh, some of you have the uh, an unbelievable gift of cramming 
you know, seven years into a four-year education. I know that. Uh, you just have to do it. It takes a while. Some of you are on your way. I, I talked to a man today who touched my heart so. He said, uh, in addition to having two children at home, he wasn't complaining. He just was in conversation. He works between 50 and 60 hours a week, plus carries a full load here. Now, you tell me how that's possible, except by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, enabling. So I, I've found a lot of new heroes in my life, and I thank God for the opportunity to be with you. I can't talk about all the people I've met, but I would say that uh, your president has been so gracious, and I don't know. I've had a chance to be with all of our college presidents this year, so I have to be careful about what I say. They're all wonderful people, but I haven't met one that has a deeper passion for the school and for the students and for the future and has a better vision. So you need to hug him every now and then. Let him know that. I'm sure you do. He is a great leader. Well, let's get to work so you can get back to class. I know you've got a lot of good things going on, a lot of wonderful things. I want to talk to you tonight about the anointing. And I'm going to do something that I do not very well, and you're going to have to pray real hard. Uh, I mean, I, I don't do very often, and I don't do very well. I, I preach normally from an outline, just a few words on a page, and I'm very comfortable with that. But I, I have a bit of a manuscript I've put together, and, and I'm just going to try to pull some things out. I've done some research on this anointing, and I've had a chance to share this for a while. A lot of things have happened in my ministry, happened in your ministry. Uh, we've seen so many phases come through. We've seen so many fads come down the pike, things that looked like they were wonderful. You know, I pastored for almost 30 years, so I saw so many things, and I just wanted to hitch my wagon to them. They were so wonderful. One of the first things that came along when I was a young pastor was bus ministry, and oh, I was so excited about it. We went out and bought the buses and did the whole thing and got the workers, and it was truly wonderful. And, and I know beyond a shadow of a doubt there are people in the ministry today, there are people in the kingdom today, there are people in heaven today because of those old buses we bought and painted and worked and went out every... I know that. I got excited, I got excited about the Kennedy plan. I, it's, it's still a great plan. But for a while, you just, if, you, if you didn't go to the Kennedy plan, you, you just probably weren't going to make it to heaven if you, didn't, you know, if you weren't certified in that. And I don't want to say it was just a fad because it's still working and people are still being led to the Lord through that. But it's one of those kind of a do or die things. And they just kept going on and on. I guess my deep hunger was to really serve God and do whatever it took to get as many people as I possibly could in. I've always been a person that's been, oh accused of being a marketer at the same time trying to reach people. I, I just would do anything. I just felt like if, if Jesus gave away free fish and chips dinners, then I could do just about anything to get a crowd together, you know? And, and as I, I, I remember one of the things I did as a, as a young pastor trying to build Sunday school and trying to touch lives, we had a little league day. And, uh, and you're, you'll learn it soon enough that it's, it's a lot easier to get forgiveness and permission when you're with your boards. And I didn't even tell the board about this. I didn't ask him. We just kind of worked around. I got some funding for it. And I remember we, uh, we bought a bunch of Rollins hardballs, uh, baseballs. We put flyers out all over the Little League Park and said, if, if, if you come to this event, uh, you'll get a free Rollins hardball. You have to wear your uniform. And we had a uh, we contacted the coaches of the Little League in the town and said, if the one that has the highest percentage of your team here, you're going to get a $50 gift certificate to spend any way you want to on your team, you know, at the nearest sporting goods store. And had no idea what to expect, but that day we gave away 96 Rollins hardballs. I mean, it was pretty exciting. We 
registered all the kids as they came in. And of course, their parents had to bring them for the most part, you know. So we, we just had, a, I mean, we had a phenomenal, overflowing crowd. And I remember we had it set up so that up front, I, somebody would call their names out and read it. Johnny Jones, third base for the Tigers. And this little guy would come trotting up there, you know, and give him his baseball and shake his hand, you know, and goes back. And the one thing I did learn, because it was a, one of those old shotgun kind of sanctuaries with a sloping floor, I did learn that the next year we would give the hard balls out after the service was over. <laughs> but then we had a chance to move those children down to the children's church area, and I had a chance to present the gospel to their parents, and the children's church workers had a chance to present the gospel to the children. And on, We did a 300-foot-long banana split. That was an interesting day. Actually, we did it three years in a row. We even had the TV studios come out. I'd probably be arrested now for doing that. Think about, think about it, having three or four hundred children with spoons eating side by side in the same Sunday bowl. Ooh, think about it. We didn't think about that then. We just wanted to get a crowd together for Jesus. We trusted him to help with the germs and all these situations. But I guess along the way, I just would try just about anything to get people together and to be able to present the gospel to them and grow a church. I guess the question is, what are, what are we really, really hungry for in, in our lives and in our ministries? Hampton Sides uh, wrote a f wonderful book. Uh, it's called Ghost Soldiers. I don't know if any of you have read it or not. It's about the Bataan Death March in the Philippines and the struggles we went through when we really, first time in American history, we really abandoned our troops in the Philippines. I mean, it was so bad we had to leave so quickly. Thousands were there. These were young men from different branches of the service. They'd been drafted from Missouri and Michigan and Ohio and Texas and Kentucky and all these places where they had never ever seen subtropical weather. They were sick. They were diseased. They were starving. And then they put them on that horrible death march. Put them in. They talked about one prison particularly, it's called Cabana Tuan and the horrible things, the atrocities that happened there. It was just horrid. And how that if, if they could just find a, a cricket or a cockroach or a mouse, it was a delicacy because for months upon end, they survived on a bowl of dirty rice every day. And these men shrank down below 100 pounds. Many of them lost their eyesight because of lack of protein. Tells of one night, and he interviewed a number of survivors. He tells of one night when they were in there on their cots, filthy barracks they lived in, and he said it was so hot they were laying there just stripped down on those cots. All the sounds were only the night sounds of the crickets and the birds. He said they'd lay there and just the perspiration would just roll off of them. They'd lay as still as they could, just hoping for a breeze in that humid night. He said, all of a sudden, as these starving men were laying there, somebody said, my mama's fried chicken. Somebody else across the room said, my Aunt Jane's mashed potatoes with gravy. Somebody across the room, most of you will not understand this, said, deep fried okra. And then somebody spoke up and said, Ah, oh, my sister Donna's homemade sweet tea. Hampton Sides said that in a matter of moments, those starving men in their minds 
had created a banquet table that was bulging downward in the middle, laden with all of these delicacies that they could only dream about and think about, and most would never, ever taste again. A graphic picture. And when I read that, I had to ask myself, Laurel, I'm sorry, Dr. Matson, what, what am I hungry for? I think it's an important question for you tonight. I wish I could stay for a few hours and we could really discuss this. It's, it's burning on my heart and I don't see it as the next fad in the church. But I do see it in the eyes of our people. I read it in the prayer requests of pastors, clergy, men and women from all across the United States this summer at the Palacons. How they were so hungry in their hearts for revival and renewal and the touch of God. It's a good thing. It's a positive thing. I see it in your eyes. I hear it in your longings around this altar. I see it when you come up to me and you've, you've included me. I felt such a part of this place in just a day and a half. It's amazing. I interviewed six phenomenal candidates this afternoon. I wish I could load them all up on the plane with me in the morning. Take them back where you belong, to Florida. Don't forget about that. But I, I think we've got to ask ourselves, what, what are we hungry for? 1 John chapter 2 and verse 20. But you have an anointing an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. There is not a lack of truth on this campus, is there? When I meet with you and talk to you, you brag on your professors. That's the way it should be. You respect them. You admire them. You are thankful for what they are sharing with you. The bread of life they are breaking before you in all your areas of ministry and study. But this passage, but you have an anointing we have this anointing, the thought is that God wants it more than we want it. That we would be able to experience this anointing on our lives and on our ministries. It's a critical factor. You see, that's the difference between a calling and a vocation. A calling and a career is the anointing. And as we look at this passage, one writer has said that the divine anointing is the visitation of the Holy Spirit upon one's life in such a fashion that the visitation is openly and discernibly visible by others. People can look and sense, and you know people. Oh, I, I spent a lot of time digging around in the scriptures and, and searching, and it's so obvious there are reference, there's reference after reference on those anointed. You, you, you look at the life of Moses, you see his experience at the burning bush, you see him during the plagues and standing before Pharaoh. I mean, you sense the anointing on his life there. You see him leading the people through the Exodus, and you go on to Sinai. You, you tell me at Mount Sinai, you t tell me that there was not an anointing on that man's life to stand in the very presence of God and receive the word and the truth of God. And you go on and you look at Samuel. You look at Samuel when he forecasts the fall coming and how strong he was in doing that. You look at Samuel when he was face to face with 
the struggles and the issues that prophets dealt with in that day. You look at him at the anointing of David when he kept sensing there was more and sensing there was more and finally this young kid comes in with sheep manure between his toes and he's going to be the next king. Somehow Samuel knew it and experienced it. One of the most tragic things is you look at Saul and you see a man who experienced the full anointing of God and lost it. But then you look at David who had such a phenomenal respect for the anointing that when he had the chance to murder him, when he had the chance for the revenge that it seemed like was coming to him, he stood back and told his troops, oh, touch not God's anointing. I use that passage a lot when I'm dealing, not a lot, occasionally when I'm using, dealing with boards that seem to want to move in on the pastor's anointed territory. I do my best to put the fear of God in them, one of that. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Ah, oh, there's so many experiences. Jeremiah, and we can't go through all of these, but you look at Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, and you see the burden, the inspiration, the ability to stand up. You go with Peter and the New Testament, and you see the anointing all over this man. I mean, impulsive, kind of a reflex-oriented in a negative way, and you see Peter, but... You see him praying up on that roof and you see the visitor that comes and calls him and calls him over and you already see the Holy Spirit making the way in his heart to go and you see him preaching the gospel for the first time to those who were not worthy to receive it in the eyes of so many. And then you see him standing up for the apostles, <laughs> before the leaders, those who were chastising him. You look at just... So we look at New Testament characters and we see God moving and working. You look at Saul or Paul after his conversion. Haven't you always wondered about the power there and the strength there? Haven't you seen him in your own life when they took him out of town and, and stoned him and left him for dead and they go back laughing and kind of patting themselves on the back for finally taking care of this nuisance and after the city gate closes few moments you see a little bloody hand come up over the ditch and then another one and he claws his way up and out of that pit he waits for a while to get his strength up on one knee then up on another then staggers and stands and the scripture says that he heads off to preach the gospel to others <laughs> Whew. It takes more than stamina for that. See, people in the world have stamina. CEOs of major corporations have stamina. But my friend, you are called to be an anointed preacher of the gospel. <laughs> this anointing is so powerful. Oh, I want to take a few moments and, and look at the practice of this anointing. Adam Clark is one we have to look at. The anointing with the Spirit, he says, is a further aspect of the second work of grace, that which regards it as a conferring of authority and power. You see, anointing and the call are different. The anointing really clarifies the call. We are called, but when the anointing of God comes upon us, it solidifies the call and it 
shows others that the call of God is real and active in our lives. Adam Clark not only wrote well about unction and anointing, he allowed the concepts to be exemplified through the power of the Holy Spirit. Clark has been a model of the Spirit-empowered preacher for generations and will be for generations to come. The Holy Spirit was one of the strong foundational stones for Adam Clark's ability to preach with unction. In a letter to a friend, Clark wrote, I have lived more than three score years and ten. I have traveled a good deal by sea and by land. I have conversed with and seen many people in and from many different countries. I have studied all the principal religious systems in the world. I have read much, thought much, and reasoned much, and the result is I am persuaded of the simple, unadulterated truth that of no book but the Bible and of the excellency of no system of religion, but that contained by the Holy Scriptures, and especially Christianity. Clark loved the Scriptures with a passion. He worked on his commentary, now think about this, for some 30 years, studying, teaching, preaching, living out, embracing the Word of God. It's no wonder that a man who so loved God's Word preached sermons saturated with the Bible. To preach the Word was a precious and personal conviction for Clark. He never, a quote by Wes Tracy, he never entered the pulpit, but with a painful sensation of his reasonable or responsibility as a messenger of the Gospel, the thought of inadequately declaring the counsel of God as to make the gospel of none effect, frequently drank up his spirit and made his soul tremble. Now few preachers can define the term unction. It's hard for us. But everyone who's ever preached a message can tell you what it's like to preach without it. It is a painful, discouraging, lonely, clock-stopping experience. When you're under the anointing and you're preaching, you can never have enough time. When you're preaching by your own power, you can never sit down soon enough. I was a young pastor with a young family, three young boys. It was camp meeting week, and I was... Driving back and forth to camp, wasn't staying there, it was an hour away, and we had so much going on at church, I just didn't feel like I could do that. And I wanted to be a good team player, so I, I was there as much as I could get there, and I was tired and weary. My Sunday rolled around, and I did not have a good sermon ready. I was a pastoring at a good-sized church, and there were wonderful people there, and, and I tried, but I'm telling you what, it, this Saturday night special, I literally fell asleep trying to put the Saturday night special together after camp meeting that night stood in my own pulpit the next day and I preached. I, I did the very best I could and I knew it was bad. There's an evangelist in the church in Nazarene and a good friend of mine by the name of Howard Rickey. He's from up in the Detroit area and he kind of has that Detroit demeanor and Detroit persona like you mess with me and my brother Guido will take care of you. That kind of guy, you know. But he's a great guy. He's a wonderful guy. And I needed some consolation. I had my wife and my three kids in the van. We were heading to camp meeting. Howard Ricky was riding with me, sitting up here in the front seat, riding along, you know. 
I was hoping for just a, I just need a little salve, just a little salve on my wounds. And so I, I said to Howard as we were riding along, you know, I said, Howard, have you, have you ever preached a sermon where you just couldn't find a place to land? And I knew he was going to say, oh, Larry, you know, you did such a phenomenal job that I didn't even notice. And oh, Howard, as truthful, as painfully truthful as he was, I mean, as soon as I said couldn't find a place to land, he said, couldn't find a place to land? You never got off the runway. <laughs> he was so right. There was no real anointing there that morning. And I had to take credit for it. It's a good thing to have good sermon outlines. Got to have them. Got to work hard on them. Got to spend hours on them. For me, and some of you are a lot sharper and brighter, I knew if I was always off my game. I, I was never able to really preach good messages unless I, I spent two hours in study for every five minutes I was going to preach. That was a rule of thumb, and I tried to stay close to that. But as I looked times when I just didn't pull it off. I want to tell you the study is critically important and I'll study in God's word till I die. It's so important. But as Clark says it, as Sangster says it, as, that, as uh, Wes Tracely puts it, there, there's no substitute for prayer when it comes to preparing sermons and working on those. You have to find that time. You have to make that time. Now, I've learned in our busy schedules that in my walking time, I pray in the mornings. Jesus wears Adidas. I wear New Balance. We take off in the morning walking, and we talk, and we go back and forth. I listen a lot. I spend a lot of time praying. This afternoon, I had a little break after my last person. I went back to the hotel, kind of skipped dinner, and I'm sure I'll make up for that tonight. But... Uh, I got on the treadmill for 45 minutes and, and just had a chance to talk to the Lord and go through this thing. It's a wonderful time. You find those times. But the solid times, the silent times, the quiet times are so very important. And if you're going to seek and experience the anointing of God, there has to be that quiet time, that time when you're before God and crying out to God and experiencing His presence and allowing Him to speak to you so that He can do that cleansing work in your heart and in your life. and He can make that difference on a daily basis. When you try to stand up before your people, it's like having an M16 with no clip in it. All show and no go. You've got to have that time. And then the Scriptures. It is said that those who heard Adam Clark preach continually remarked about the unusual degree of unction with which he preached. If Sangster is correct, and I believe he is, it is no wonder Clark's preaching was so punctuated with unction. One close friend observed, the Bible was his one book and prayer his continual exercise. He frequently read it on his knees and often watered it with his tears. His son Joseph wrote about his father, quote, He never entered the pulpit but with the conviction that if God did not help him by the influence of the Holy Spirit, his heart must be hard and his mind dark, without unction and without fruit. For this influence he besought the Lord with strong crying and with tears, and was seldom, if ever, left by himself. He preached with power and purpose because he paid an incredible price. 
Word of God. The precious, holy, living, inspired, anointed work of God. One of the things I learned that if I wanted God's anointing, when I stand before people, when I lead worship, some of you will not preach messages and take a text, but you will lead worship and be preaching messages with the direction, the leadership, the Holy Spirit is giving you through that. Some of you will be in Christian ed. The anointing of God is desperately needed there, isn't it? As you share the Word of God. Some of you will be counselors. Is there ever a day we needed more anointed counselors sharing back and forth with people? As we look at God's Word, nothing can take its place because here we are. Now think about this. If you want to experience the anointing of God, then I would tell you to embrace and make your very own the anointed Word of God. For you can stand before your people with the most articulate sermon that Brother Swindoll ever put together that you might have on tape. But without the anointing of God and without owning the Scriptures yourself, it will be flat. People deserve on Sunday mornings when they come to church to hear a message from someone who has been living in the Scriptures all week long. And the Word of God has become their very own. And when they stand and proclaim it, people sense the anointing of God on that message. It's God's Word and it's prayer. You've probably heard in some of your classes, maybe a professor has read this by Dr. Brzee, and then we'll close. But he said, what is our specific work? For what purpose are we raised up? The one reason for our church life is that holiness may be preached and conserved in the earth. Any great continuous religious movement depends quite largely upon preachers. Ordinary preachers cannot do this work. They must be men, and I'll say and women, burning with holy fire. Ones who have come to their Pentecost, who live under the anointing and the glory of the Holy Ghost, whose vision is so clear, looking through pure hearts, that God in Christ, redeeming the world, means salvation from all sin. Men who preach so that whatever their subject and whatever they say, people realize they are being led to the bosom of God unto the abundance of His life and fullness of His love. There is no place in the church of the Nazarene for ordinary preaching. It is not learning or eloquence nor education. It is only lofty thought which climaxes intellectual power. But it is God speaking through His servant beseeching men and women to be reconciled to God. For him to preach anything less than the transforming fullness of God is to quit the heights and shut his eyes to the very vision of God. I learned a long time ago from Psalm 133 how to pray before I got up to preach. I prayed it this afternoon before I came in this place. I prayed it early when I was pastoring, getting up early long before my wife and kids would be up in the darkness of the morning before I ever left for church. It's very simple. 
come once before again. And I never felt like kneeling was good enough at that point. I felt like I needed to stand before him. And I raised my hand before him and closed the door of my little closet there where I prayed. And I just say, oh Lord, would you please uncork the horn of oil this morning? Would you allow the Holy Spirit to flow down over me? Would you anoint my brain this day, Lord, so that I could think and share those things that need to be said this morning? Would you anoint my eyes, oh Lord, this morning so that I could see those people out there, especially the ones you want me to see. And help me, Lord, not to miss a one. Lord, would you anoint my ears this morning so that I can hear your voice as I stand before my people. Lord, would you anoint my nose, let that oil just flow so that I could smell the sweet savor of your presence all about the house of God. Would you anoint my lips, Lord, so that they would be yours and not mine and your words would come forth. Lord, would you anoint my shoulders today because you know, Lord, as I walk to the pulpit this morning, during Sunday school, there will be someone that will be angry about something. There will be somebody that has an issue they want to talk about before I ever go to the pulpit. And Lord, would you just let it slide off of my shoulders like water off a duck's back today so that I can stand before you and these precious people unencumbered. Would you anoint my heart, Lord? Is, is there anything there that would prohibit me from being anointed preacher this day? Show me. Help me, Lord. Anoint my hands and my arms as I reach out and embrace people this day. A child, that teenager, that adult. May they be your hands extended. Lord, let it flow down my body. And let it flow down to the hem of my garment and anoint my feet and legs as I stand firm for you today. Anoint my feet, for you say in your word that blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. It's out of God's word. And I know every time I pray that, that God wants it more than I want it. The holy anointing of God. It's not something you can buy. It's not something you can work up. It's a lifestyle. But there are times in our life when we have to beg God for it. Maybe it's in those moments when He opens our eyes to issues and concerns. Stand with me, would you please? I want this so desperately in all of your lives, and I would not be so foolish as to say it's not there already. And I would be even more foolish if I said, if you run down to the altar right now, you're going to get it. It's a lifestyle. It's a hunger. It's a desire. There's a wonderful little chorus that says, Lord, I'm hungry for a mighty move of God. Lord, I'm thirsty. Now we're going to sing that chorus. For those of you who are so hungry, for those of you maybe who have been dealing with it lately, for those of you who are so busy, working hours that you don't have to work, and come home and your kids, many of you, are already asleep. You kind of stand at their bed, maybe go over and hold their little hand, brush the hair back on their face. And then, after you've worked, you go in and sit down three or four hours of studies and homework and papers. And you say, Brother Dennis, you don't have any idea. Where's the anointing for me? God wants it worse than you do. 
And I would just say, as you continue to serve and as you continue to follow and as you continue to guard your hearts, God's anointing will be there. But tonight, I just feel so compelled to open the altar before I go. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. I just sense there might be some. You just need to tell him that you're hungry. And you long for his very best. You long for his touch and you long for his smile. There's room at these altars. There'll be room at the pews if you want, or the front seats if you want to come. We'll not embarrass you and try to pull prayers out of you. We won't be beating you on the back. But if you just sense this hunger and you can't wait till you get home to pray about it, why don't you make your way down here? Let's pray together. Listen to the words of this song.